what is this one? We've done the New Year's one, haven't we? That's mm-hmm. coming up tomorrow. So this is so this is just a normal episode, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, okay. But no, we've done next week's as well. So we've done two for 2015. So okay. this really is just a normal episode. But it is the last one of 2014. Not as far as they're concerned, it'll be the third one of 2015. As far as we're concerned. <laughs> yeah, but it has to make sense contextually. We can't be talking about the end of 2014 when we've already had two episodes that didn't bother mentioning it. When has that ever bothered us? Uh, Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody! Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. It is. New table. Yep. There's a new look in Hey Kids Towers, by which I mean we have a new recording table. Mm Mm-hmm. Still in the middle of the house, so anyone can come in and disrupt it. And welcome to the second part of Intercompany Crossovers, which didn't start off as a thing, but, but became a thing. As... Yes, it's now become a thing. In the lead-up to Avengers vs. the Justice League, or JL Avengers. I like to call it JL Avengers. As I believe you referred to it. It's very cold, so we're having a cup of tea. We've nothing to say, really, have we? <laughs> As we record this, it's still 2014. <laughs> We're well ahead yeah. over the Christmas holidays. But hey, I hope 2015's going well for you so far. I hope it's gone well for us so far. So do I, that's, that's very true. We, uh, fu- hello, future Russes. <laughs> hello, future people. So we'll do a couple of emails. Today, we will clear out the sack... The sack will be emptied all over the place, for there will be nothing left. We will have fully cleared out the pipes by the end of this particular email session. That's the cat going a, a little AWOL. Yo, bye cat! Oh, she shoots. So, we need more emails. Um, if we hope to have an email section on next week's show, then yes. yes. But obviously by the time... They hear this, two more episodes will have gone up yeah, that yeah. haven't gone up yet, so there'll probably be a bulging sack again. <laughs> Needs emptying on a regular basis. Yes. I think you'll agree. Mark Lax is our emailer tonight. A very spiffing episode of Hey Kids Comics. I like that. Mm-hmm. I said we want to bring spiffing back. I think we should. Spiffing. Okay. It's a good word. It is. It almost sounds rude, which I always like in a word. How does it sound rude? I'm going to spiff you. Spaceman spiff! Okay. Or was he Spaceman spliff? No, we can't have been spliff, can he? <laughs> no, that's a completely different thing. Hello, Mr. Leyland. And Mr. Leyland, says Mark. Whilst I have been reading several new 52 books, I've only encountered Batman in his guest role in the Superman comics and Justice League. When I heard the fellas were going to discuss Zero Year, I had to read this book. 
Guys, I cannot agree with you more. Always words we like hearing. <laughs> As my first official foray into the new 52 Batman, I was really floored at how great this story was. I was not very familiar with Snyder's writing, and I was pleasantly surprised. Not only was the story fantastic, but the way he left clues as to what was to come, and threw in a few Easter eggs paying homage to the Batman stories and films was brilliant. As for the art, well, I was somewhat familiar with Capullo as an artist, and I was expecting some good art, but wow! Not only was it beautiful, but its storytelling was magnificent. My hat goes off to the inker and colorist. The books were truly beautiful. Yes, I'm gushing, but I couldn't care less. If the rest of the New 52 had stories like this, I think there would be less complaints. I'm going to go back and read Court of Owls. It probably will pale in comparison, but I'm sure it's a great story. Michael, thank you for choosing this. Not only did I love every panel, but your synopsis and analysis was nothing short of awesome. Thank yes, you. I am gushing. Go on. Thank you. I talked over you saying thanks. Sorry about that. But I could care less. Finishes Mark. And whilst I prefer Wolverine over Lobo, hey, Lobo can kick his ass. Then Superman can come and make mincemeat out of him. Your friend, Mark Lax. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. We're, uh, we're glad that we made you gush. <laughs> so now we're not the only ones. So not only emptying sacks, we're making people gush. Yep. <laughs> If nothing else, Zero Year seems to have been a hit with people who haven't been reading New 52 Batman. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, in that case, job well done. I think you'll agree. Always nice when we can make people think twice about something. Uh, Chris Franklin's emailed in with Happy Christmas! Happy! It's happy because yeah. we covered happy yeah. on the Christmas show. It's Yay, funny because it's, it's true. Merry Christmas, Leyland! Well, Merry Christmas, Chris. <laughs> From four weeks ago. <laughs> First off, Andy, you sound like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> uh, was I ill in the Christmas episode? You were, yeah. Was I? Because yes. we recorded them wildly out of sequence, didn't we? So yeah. I have no idea which episodes I wasn't well for and which. So pro- probably what happened was I sounded a bit ill, then I sounded okay, then I sounded a lot ill, yeah. and then I sounded a bit ill, and then I was back to normal. Because we, we changed the production order around. Because we have a production schedule. <laughs> We're like professionals. We make episodes and then go, Ooh, no. I think that one would be better for Sweep Sweep. Can we change them around? Like that? Like pretend professionals. Like pretend professionals, yeah. Because that's what we are. Pretend professionals. Otherwise known as amateurs. <laughs> Perhaps a trip to the honey pot might help clear that throat. I hope you mend quickly so you can fully enjoy the Christmas festivities. Well, thanks, Chris. It's still hanging on a bit. Still got a bit of a cough, but nothing Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Feel for me. Uh, I'm glad my email led to the pink flamingo man bit, which seemed to cheer you up a bit, and it still amuses me. Batman dressed in pink, standing on one leg on a gargoyle. Striking fear into the hearts of the criminals in Tampa. have a career in somewhere like Tampa, could he? No. Because it's not like there's a lot of skyscrapers. That's why he'd have to be a flamingo. Flamingo, man. That did amuse me. And continues to do so. Yeah. Continues to amuse me. Chris continues, I haven't read either of those comics, but I enjoyed your coverage. Happy sounds a bit too bleak for my cheery taste, but it did seem interesting and a bit out of the ordinary from what I know of Grant Morrison. The Ant-Man comic sounds more my speed. Maybe they should use this as a Christmas release movie sequel if the first film performs well. I can see Paul Rudd punishing a nasty family at Christmas. Merry Christmas to the entire Leyland clan, because there's nothing I like better than Christmas episodes in the middle of January. And thank you for a great year of insight, wit, and entertainment on a topic I love. Well, uh, we're glad that you're entertained. 
But I can't make any claims to us being insightful or witty. No. We try to be. Whether we come off as that. Emphasis on try. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We appreciate that, Chris. And our final email tonight, and then the sack is gone. It's empty. Mm-hmm. The sack is no longer bulging. It's from a new emailer. Because he actually puts that in the in the heading. New emailer. <laughs> there you go. Thank you very much. Uh, James Lewis emailed in. Ahoy, Radio Free Leylands. I like the idea of being Radio Free Leyland. Like a Radio Free Wasteland. Like, uh, Radio Free Europe. Yeah. That kind of thing. Brilliant. I have been a fairly consistent listener for the better part of a year, circa your last Christmas episode. So I thought it was darn time I emailed in. I greatly enjoy your show and always love the banter between Michael and yourself. Being around Michael's age, I find it greatly amusing how similar our opinions are on most comics, especially our love for Grant Morrison. It seems most of our generation of readers love the man's work. I'm not sure what it is about it, but it struck a chord with our particular age group. Perhaps it is that he takes the comic's form and stretches it to fit around his big concepts and usually results in something that appears new and interesting. Love him or hate him, you have to admit, one thing Grant Morrison never is, is uninteresting. But there are occasions where he stretches the form too far and it snaps and falls apart, resulting in a mess of confusion and incoherency. But at his best, Grant Morrison delivered All-Star Superman, a comic that holds a very special place in my heart. It made me laugh and cry and hope, but most importantly... It made me love Superman for the very first time. No longer was I a Batman-crazed fanboy. Morrison made me understand Superman, and in doing so, suffer and triumph alongside him for 12 issues. I found your coverage of this book to be spot on, but no matter what Morrison will do in the future, no matter how bad his future work may be, he will always have written All-Star Superman, and for that I will follow the man wherever he goes in comics. In summation, Morrison made me cur because he curred, and as a result he wrote what is without a doubt my favourite comic book ever, the aforementioned All-Star Superman. But enough about Morrison, here's to a brand new year and a bright new year for Hey Kids Comics. Happy holidays to Andrew and the Leyland Force. Your listener, James from Texas. And James, put where he's from! I don't know why I like that. I just do. You like knowing where our listeners are all I like, I like... I don't know what it is that this Tim Pot local... Internet radio show. We laughingly refer to it as a radio show. Yeah. That we record in here. Our dining room <laughs> goes out and people from all over the world listen. Mm-hmm. I quite like that. It's quite fun. Quite disappointing if it was just family members humouring <laughs> us. Family don't listen to this drivel, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Thanks for emailing in, James. We very much appreciate it. Anyway, that's it. We have no more emails. Nope. For I looked around and wept, for there were no more emails to conquer. Benefits of a classical education. Uh, we'll be back after this commercial break. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo... And more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course... Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what?
you know, since Disney bought out Star Wars, yeah. does that make Princess Leia a Disney princess? Yeah. They're going to give her her own castle? I presume so. But shit like a Death Star. Yeah. See, that's kind of funny, but for Alderaan reasons. Oh! Did you just make that up, or did you steal <laughs> that off somebody? I can neither confirm. <laughs> you may think that. I could not possibly comment. The wall-crawling wonder, the amazing Spider-Man. The Dark Knight himself, the dread Batman. When thinking of two characters to put together for an intercompany crossover, these are two that immediately come to mind. Sure, Superman and Spider-Man, that's a good combo. Superman's straight-up heroism and confidence contrasts well with Spidey's insecurities and smart-ass attitude. Plus, in their secret identities, both hail from a journalistic background, so there's fun to be had contrasting their different approaches. Likewise, Superman and the Fantastic Four would seem to be a good mix, both featuring heavy sci-fi elements to their stories. Green Lantern and Silver Surfer? Interesting. Darkseid and Thanos, or Darkseid and Galactus? Again, interesting. But Spider-Man and Batman? Yes, both characters were forged in tragedy and both have combated darkness over the years. But Batman likes his junior partners to be subservient, and Spider-Man has a strong streak of rebellion in him, making him unlikely to kowtow before the caped crusader. The only way that this makes any sense is on a purely financial level. And thus the almighty dollar did decree that the Dark Avenger of the Night and the Webhead would meet not once, but twice in a relatively short span of time. The first meetup was a Marvel production, and as such, Spider-Man received top billing. Entitled Disordered Minds, from a quote by Wolfgang von Goeth, this was written by J.M. DeMatteis, the penciler was Mark Bagley, and inks were provided by Scott, Hannah, and Mark Farmer. As befits a big deal crossover, it was presented in the deluxe format of the time. Had this been the 1970s, it would have been a treasury edition. This being the 90s, it was a rather slim 48-page bookshelf edition with a square-bound cover that was embossed, because... 90s. It was released in September of 1995, as were you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drawn by Mark Bagley, the characters of Spider-Man and Batman are embossed as well as the logo. It's a standard pose cover, rendered well enough by Bagley. His art is always clean and smooth. However, his overly rendered musculature... I can never pronounce that right, do I? For muscles. Yes, is a tad off-putting. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> it's part of uh, Bag's style at this point, so complaining about it seems uh, seems moot. What did did you think of that cover that you may stroke? If uh, so I, I like you can stroke Batman's manly I, chest. I can, yeah. <laughs> Creeping you out. Uh, I, I like Spider-Man, but there's something a bit off about his Batman. And it's weird you should say that, because when we get to the next one, yeah. It's the other way around, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that there is obvious reasons for that. It's alright, isn't it? it? There's no need for it to be embossed. Other than 90s. Other than 90s. And, you know, because of that, it's made the cover kind of bend up, hasn't it? Yeah. It's, it's kind of bent it because of and the all embossing. The credits on the inside of the, the page as well. Yeah. I mean, it's alright, I suppose. I mean, if you're going to do something like... Because it doesn't look... Like it's spectacular if you just look at it, does it? No. You have to actually rub it to feel that it's embossed. So, you know, maybe they should have done silver logo for the Spider-Man and Batman. And it's the crap Spider-Man logo as well, isn't it? Yeah. The crap 90s Spider-Man logo. And Batman's just Batman. It's not even a logo. <laughs> it's not like they've got the amazing Spider-Man logo and the Batman logo. I mean, I like the Bat-Signal with webs on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's quite amusing, a blending of the spider signal and the bat signal, but uh, it's like I say, it's alright. All of Bagley's muscles on these characters, though, look like they're hewn from marble, don't they? Yeah. Even your mum commented that that's a little bit much. But uh, she doesn't normally make many comments about the comics that I have lying around, other than, <laughs> will you tidy this crap up? That's normally, you know, mm-hmm. the, extent of, it goes. the extent of her, uh, her commentary, yeah. The story runs thus. At the Ravencroft Mental Institution, Cletus Cassidy, a.k.a. Carnage, has been selected as part of a new experimental process spearheaded by Dr. Cassandra Breyer. She has an experimental chip that, when installed into the cerebral cortex of a subject, can alter their brainwaves, subsuming their personalities and, in certain cases, removing abhorrent tendencies. Dr. Ashley Kafka, ward of Ravenscroft, thinks this is nothing more than a high-tech lobotomy. Sounds to me like what Khan did with his setty eels. Nevertheless, Briar has been given the go-ahead and duly operates on Cassidy. The operation seems to be a complete success, with Cassidy now no more than a mindless drone. Emboldened by her success, Briar turns her attention to bigger game. In Gotham City, the Batman hauls the Joker back to Arkham Asylum once more, after preventing him releasing yet another virus that would kill lots of people. Bit of a stuck record there, I think. Briar is there, hawking her words, and with Cassidy as her audition tape, she manages to procure permission to operate on the Joker. Again, all seems to go well. Briar is the talk of the town, with TV appearances and interviews. However, in the back of her limo, her overconfidence would turn out to be her weakness, as she travels with Cassidy and the Joker and no armed guard. To no one's surprise, this was all a cunning ruse. The Carnage symbiote short-circuited Briar's chip before Cassidy's head was even sewn back up. Carnage then starts a rampage. However, the Batman, suspicious of everyone, is in disguise as the limo driver and takes action. Batman versus Carnage, baby! Sadly, the battle is short-lived, as Carnage prefers easier targets and threatens Dr. Briar. Before you can say thwip, Spider-Man, also of the suspicious bent, webs Briar away and we get fisticuffs. Carnage pulls his usual trick of threatening innocence, and as Spidey and Batman prevent injury, Carnage pulls a fast fade with the Joker. As you may expect, the Batman isn't best pleased about Spider-Man making the guest appearance in his city, and politely tells him to piss off. Okay, maybe not that politely. Meanwhile, Carnage has performed a chipectomy on the Joker, but it doesn't quite go Carnage's way when the Joker, who considers himself the Orson Wells of crime, has different methods for wiping people out than Carnage, who simply aspires to be David Hasselhoff. The Joker ditches Carnage and then blows him up real good. The Batman, having read up on Carnage, approaches Spider-Man and almost apologises, and the mismatched pair zoom off and locate Carnage thanks to the chip in his head which operates on a specific frequency which the Batman can trace. Carnage gains the upper hand on the Dark Knight detective, and Batman tells Spider-Man to stop Carnage, his own life be damned. The Joker arrives, threatening to release the virus from earlier on if Carnage doesn't release the Batman, and Carnage actually knows fear. With the symbiote scourge, Batman kicks Carnage's red ass up and down town, while Spider-Man takes out the Joker-shaped trash. The duo shake hands, a job well done. They then turn to the camera and run towards us, smiling as they go. Starring Adam West and Nicholas Hammond. <laughs> uh, you know, it was what it was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> was that your opinion as well? Kind of, yeah. Moving on to the next one. Who, who was, uh, what was Demetrius writing at the time? 
1995, spectacular Spider-Man, I think. I thought so. Why? Because Spider-Man was much better written than Batman. I don't think he's ever written Batman for an extended period of time. He's done a couple of Legends of the Dark Knight arcs. One yeah. of which, Grimm, is really, really good. Right. It's just these Batman in this, and the Batman characters are just wrong. Well, it's it's similar to what you said with the artwork as well. It Bagley's a Spider-Man artist, isn't he? So Spidey and Murray Jane are all on model. Yeah, he's, he's Batman stuff... It's not bad. No, and from someone who's probably never drawn them before, they're pretty good. It's mm. just the writing for Batman seems wrong and forced. Right. Particularly lines such as, Bruce Wayne is a lie, Batman is the truth. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of moved away from that a little bit towards the end of the 90s, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, and Batman being a bit of an ass to Alfred. Oh, I hate your butties and I used to put them down the toilet. <laughs> See, I thought that bit was a bit funny. I especially liked Alfred saying, try the Happy Meal, sir. I hear it's simply exquisite. Yeah. Which is almost the same gag that was in Batman Forever, but done better here. Yeah. I'll get drive through. <laughs> this, this is a bit better than that. Um, my other complaint about this, the back half of it feels really rushed. Mm. And I don't think it helps that we spend the first eight pages recapping the origins of the two protagonists and linking their tragedies together. As such, the burglar that killed Uncle Ben's the Joker, and which, can you imagine if they'd done that in the film? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have gone down well, wouldn't it? And Joe Chill, if it's even Joe Chill at this point, I don't know, uh, looks like Carnage. Mm. So I could have, I think those eight pages were largely superfluous, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, in, when they had the space to do it in the Treasury Edition, the Superman Spider-Man Treasury Edition, they were fine mm. because they had the space to do it. But in this here, you just kind of like your eight pages in, and it's just recapped the origin. Yeah. That the story only starts there on page eight, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is, seemed to me a bit wasteful in a comic as flimsy as this one. Is it only 48 pages there? I think so, yeah. Because it feels very thin, yeah. given that it was whacked with a $6 at the time price tag, which probably wasn't cheap. I don't know why they dream of each other's nemesis. <laughs> because they can in a crossover right, like yeah. this. Okay. Normally, yeah. that would be, you know, copyright. Yeah, yeah. They'd end up having to pay money. And I feel like the only reason they chose Carnage as well was because Carnage was big at the time. Carnage was popular at the time. Yeah, Carnage that's... is not... Spider-Man's equivalent of the Joker. No. The Green Goblin is, and would work in this story just as well. Was the Green Goblin alive at this point, though? And he killed Harry Osborn off at this point, and Norman hadn't come back yet. It's an Elseworlds story. It is, that's (laughs) true. So it it could totally work in in any way that you want to. If you can have Batman and Spider-Man crossing over, I'm sure you can bring the Green Goblin back. Yeah, I'm sure that you could. I mean, as you've mentioned, Carnage's plan in this is flawed from the outset. Yeah. Because the Joker is all about the flamboyant act. Mm. He kills when it's funny to him Yeah, to do so. He's not a raging lunatic with a huge body count, despite what certain 90s comics would mm. interpret the Joker have. He's an outrageous showman, and Carnage, like you point out, isn't Spider-Man's main bad guy. Dr. Octopus may have worked better. Yeah. Although, why Dr. She could have operated on Dr. Octopus, couldn't she? Yeah. It would have worked just as well. Carnage, by contrast, is just a low-intellect thug. He's a moron who kills because he's a coward. And I think, ultimately, that's why Carnage is a one-note villain, for me. He's a decent bad guy for one or two stories. Yeah. Like, if Maximum Carnage and his first appearance had been all they ever did with him, Mm. he'd probably be more fondly remembered by me. But after that, it's just more of the same routine, whereas the Joker is as as inventive 
as the writer wants to be with him. And there's a wealth of story possibilities with the Joker. I disagree with the Joker that Carnage is David Hasselhoff. He's most even Seagal. Yeah, well, I got those references. I thought they were really forced and dated it. Like, the amount of times they do a reference like that. Mm. It's like, oh, he likes talking as much as Rush Lembaugh. <laughs> I'm Orson Welles and you're Hasselhoff. Well, the Orson Welles thing doesn't really date it, because he's yeah. dead. Yeah, I know. And Orson Welles is a pretty big guy, but David Hasselhoff was... Well, Baywatch will still be on, won't it? Yeah. In the middle. See, you, you know, people diss on Hasselhoff, but he's got a pretty good career. Yeah, yeah. Going on. Whereas Steven Seagal's just a bag of shit. <laughs> so Regardless of what he's in. No, everything he's in is a bag of <laughs> shit, quite frankly. So I think having him be Steven Seagal would have been much better. And he takes himself oh so seriously. Yeah. At least Hasselhoff's <laughs> got a sense of humour about himself. Mm-hmm. Whereas Seagal just... You, you would jump in Hasselhoff's car. I would indeed, <laughs> especially if it was Kit. Yeah. Whereas with Seagal, I'd plant a bomb in his car. <laughs> But uh, maybe, maybe uh, him and Jean-Claude Van Damme in the same car. That would be so tempting to blow it up, wouldn't it? Again, Jean-Claude Van Damme at least seems to have a sense of humour about himself. Mm. So I would have called him Seagal rather than Hasselhoff. Uh, Cassandra Breyer is the creator of the, the chip that neuters people, like Spike in Buffy. He had a chip like this, didn't he? Did he? For a while, yeah, but uh, Buffy came after this. Not that I'm saying that Joss Whedon rips off Marvel and DC comics. Oh, no, no, oh, no. no in no way whatsoever. She's a mere plot device. She's here to introduce the MacGuffin that kicks off the story, throw out a potentially controversial viewpoint, and then just get discarded halfway through, which she is. After Spider-Man rescues her here in the middle of the book, we never see her again. No. She has no moment where she pays the price for her overconfidence. She has no moment where she realises she's messed up. Nor does she have a moment where this solidifies her belief system mm. that what she's doing is the right thing. Look, if I'd really chipped him, none of this would happen. Yeah. She doesn't have anything, does she? She just disappears. She's just a straw man character with nothing to add once the story has been kicked into place. Yeah. Which I thought was rather feeble on behalf of Dematis. He's normally quite good at exploring the psychological angles of the characters, but midway through, this just becomes another carnage violence fest. Mm. Which maybe is what people wanted in the 90s. I don't know. Uh, Cletus being operated on is very reminiscent of A Clockwork Orange. With which, his eyes being Yeah, with his eyes being pinned up, which I presume is intentional. Yeah. I presume that's uh, an intentional nod to Malcolm What's-His-Face. Malcolm McDowell, isn't it? Not Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. I always get my sex pistols mixed up with the guy who killed Captain Kirk. Uh, in addition, the biochip operates in a similar manner to the set he yields in Star Trek 2, which I mentioned in the synopsis. Dematis drops a number of Trek references throughout the story. Dr. Kafka accuses Briar of wanting to trail Cletus Cassidy on TV shows next to the Dog-Faced Boy, which is live from episode Star Trek. Right. You probably didn't get that. The theme of Briar's work is the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, and Carnage is about to do what no man has done before, i.e. kill the Batman. Right. That last one may be a bit tenuous. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that that may be a bit weird. <laughs> uh, also midway through when Batman's in the, in the limo, disguised as the driver, he has a full mask prosthetic over his cowl. Yeah. Which is very Bronze Age. Yes. And thus seemed really out of place in the gritty, uber-realistic 90s. Do his, do his ears act like 
see we you had toys. You had to be bend over. You know, they pop back into place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of cut that some slack in the 70s because he did it so much. Yeah. So you just kind of let it go. But it, it seemed very out of place here. Which is a shame, I suppose. Because it is quite cool. Yeah. But he wears a disguise over his disguise. <laughs> or it's a bit dopey, depending on, uh, but on it's, your point it's of view. it's good dopey. Yeah, it's good dopey, but here it just didn't work. Yeah. Because of, um, you know, because of the tone of the story. There is a little bit of understated humour. Spider-Man's a little nervous when he meets Batman. And he runs off at the mouth about being the first port of call for other heroes to go to when they need help. And Batman just shuts him up by glaring at him. Yeah. Batman does his patented scowl. But later on, Batman, upon spotting the damage inflicted by the Joker, turns to Spider-Man and says, Carnage and the Joker don't seem to have hit it off as well as we have. And Spider-Man looks at him like, did you just make a joke? I like it when Batman does stuff like that. Yeah. When he makes a funny one-liner that people are like, was that supposed to be funny? Yeah. Or was that accidentally funny? <laughs> Because he does have a sense of humour. His reaction to Alfred's finger sandwiches is supposed to be funny, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he stuffed them all down the toilet. What a brat. I hope Alfred spanked him. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't paint Batman in a very, very good light. It doesn't, no, because presumably that was after his parents died. Yeah. So, <laughs> I thought he was all mean and moody after his parents <laughs> died, so sticking finger sandwiches down the toilet doesn't really fit in with that image, does it? No. Were these fingers look more like triangles? Well, the little triangle butties, they call them finger sandwiches. Oh, do they? I mean, you eat all sandwiches with your fingers. Okay, so yeah, I, yeah. I never quite understood... Knife and fork sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, I never quite understood differentiating. Because, I mean, I suppose a, a, a torpedo butty or a, a subway butty, you eat them with both hands, because yeah. they're quite large, but they're still your fingers. You call them... Two-handed butties. Yes. I'm having a finger butter, I'm having a hand butter, I'm having a two-hand butter. Oh, that's a euphemism for something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, De Matthias seems to have two types of writing styles. He's either unremittingly grim, or he's laugh-out-loud funny. And rarely does he marry the two successfully. This isn't quite unremittingly grim, although it does have its moments, but nor is it a laugh riot. There are some humorous moments, and the body count isn't completely over the top, but there is a feeling that the 90s grim and gritty attitude permeates every page. And I wouldn't say this was a fun comic, Mm. but I wouldn't say it was a bad one. It's an interesting story that even manages to to squeeze in a theme. Is it okay to lobotomise career criminals for the good of the populace? But Matthias's overwrought style is very much in evidence for the majority of the story, from the really melodramatic caption boxes to the dark tone. Yet, contrast this with the frankly preposterous Bronze Age trope of Batman wearing a disguise over his cowl. And it's like the two different tones are fighting each other yeah and it doesn't quite work in a book that has carnage in who's just the epitome of 70s grim yeah because all he does is just go around slaughtering people that's his reason for being that's all he is there is nothing more to him and as such carnage is as one note as ever dematis does do some interesting things with the joker 
having him choose to die rather than let Carnage succeed in killing the Batman, which he's constantly failed at. But, you know, I don't want to say it was bad, but I don't want to say it was good either. I thought it was quite enjoyable. Yeah. But the ending... It doesn't suck. No. The ending for me kind of ruined it a bit. It was very forced, with Spider-Man just going absolutely... Bat Guano on the Joker saying, Oh, I have to kill you! Yeah, what Bat- was that all about? I don't know, Batman doing that, maybe. But Spider-Man's never met the guy. He doesn't have that emotional connection to him that Batman does. So him just saying, Oh, I have to kill you! Yeah, you spit on everything that's decent in this world. You murder hope, you trample goodness. You suck it all down into chaos! <laughs> and you're like, really? <laughs> Isn't, wouldn't Spider-Man just have been taking the piss out of his green herb? Yeah, that, that's a bit too poncy for Spider-Man, yeah. really. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I could see him kind of being a little bit like that with Carnage, but he's not fighting Carnage. No, he's fighting a guy he's never met before. And th- just thinking about it then, you're absolutely right, because this misses a golden opportunity of having the Joker fight someone who's as big a smart ass as he is. Yeah. And DeMattis doesn't go down that route, does he? He has Spider-Man go all grim and gritty. They would have outwitted each other. Yeah. Or outsnarked each other. Yeah. The Joker would be like, Batman doesn't trade one-liners with me. Will you stop it? I'm the funny one. Yeah. That would have been better. And actually having him snap at the end and backhand him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Those two pages are, are woefully out of character mm. for Spider-Man. You are absolutely... But it was the 90s. Okay. And it was in the middle of the Clone Saga. Right, okay. I presume he was at this point. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't actually check the, the exact release date. Um, Matt Bagley's art is good. It's uniquely Bagley. He's one of those artists with whom you know exactly what you're going to get. And what he does, he does very well. Rarely is he spectacular. Yeah. Or, or does he deliver a page that takes your breath away. But if you want fast-paced, muscle fueled poster-style art, he's one of the best in the business. Mm. And he's better at that than, say, Liffield, or even arguably Jim Lee. I think... Bagley's a better draftsman than Jim Lee. Yeah. Even though Bagley does suffer from that comic book thing that all these women look the same, just with different hair colour. Mm. And his faces aren't that different from each other. But it's, it's alright, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the general... That was the general feeling I came away from it with. It was okay. I'm not sorry I bought it, because it's two of my favourite characters. I enjoyed it. But there were moments that felt, like you say, either forced or out of character. Yeah. For the sake of putting these four characters together that perhaps wouldn't go together. Spider-Man and Blue Beetle would probably get along great. Yeah. Until he got shot through the head, obviously. <laughs> so, the first meeting was a little conflicting. It's not bad, but it's not fun. It's of its time in that no one was allowed to kick back and have a laugh. Everyone had to be morose and grim to the point of ab- obstinance. It's a little less conversation, a little more action. Yeah. Wouldn't have gone amiss. And perhaps a drop of fun. Mm-hmm in the mixture. Perhaps that would have been alright as well. Regardless of what we thought of this, it must have been a sales success. And with the 90s being a thawing indie Cold War between Marvel and DC, a re-meeting between the two was scheduled for August 1997. This was DC's turn, so Batman received top billing, but DM DiMatteis was still the scripter, whereas one would have thought Chuck Dixon would have been the prime candidate to write this. Graham Nolan, Dixon's regular collaborator on detective comics, was the penciler, and Carl Kiesel was the inker, and the same 
same team provides the cover, the expected posed cover of the duo leaping down to orbs as the angle is nice. The reader looking upwards so the buildings look like they have been photographed through a fish eye lens. What do you think? It's it's good. It's not as good as the other one. It's not which wasn't great. His Spider Man looks wrong. I wouldn't say wrong. I don't want to say Rabita, but it looks See, that, kind of... That's exactly the same thing I've, I've got in my note. Uh, it's understandably Nolan gets Batman and assorted Bat family characters spot on. Yeah. Because he spent years drawing detective comics. But his Spider-Man and his Murray Jane are woefully off-model in a lot of places, aren't they? Mm. And there's a couple of places where they're barely recognisable. Like that... On uh, there's a quarter page shot of Spidey on page six. Yeah, that's barely recognisable as Spider Man. And who the hell's that? That's not Murray Jane. Yeah, or certainly not. Re- He's trying to channel John Romita Senior, but not quite pulling it off. Mm. Which is a shame because he's he's a good artist. But he, does, he doesn't quite get this Spider-Man and Murray Jane, does he? No. But again, he's a DC character, character creator who worked on Batman a lot. So it's the flip side of the other one. Yeah. So Batman's spot on, but Spider-Man's a, a little bit hinky. So it's understandably off character. Yeah. Well, I think Bagley did a better job with Batman and the Joker than Nolan does with Spider-Man and Murray Jane. I don't mind it, because there are times when it's, it's alright. Hmm. Just not great. No. Story. When Talia Al Ghul arrives in New York for a meeting with Wilson Fisk, the self-styled kingpin of crime, the Batman takes an interest. Needless to say, it doesn't take long before our favourite wall crawler crosses his path again, especially after the Batman tells Spidey that Talia's father, Ras Al Ghul, has been causing earthquakes, floods and plagues throughout the world thanks to his manipulation of the planet's tectonic plates. His final operation in his quest to have the world proclaim him saviour is to sink New York City. Spider-Man says that Fisk will never go along with that, and he is correct. Fisk has no time for Raz until Talia informs Fisk that Raz can cure the cancer, killing Fisk's wife Vanessa. To that end, Fisk agrees to take Vanessa to Raz's stronghold in Tibet, where Raz outlines his plan. The population of the planet are blind and stupid, Raz tells Fisk. The planet needs purifying, and life needs to begin again. Fisk rules a city. How would he like to rule a world? Fisk realises that this was a ruse Raz initiated to lure him here. He never had any intention of curing Vanessa. Raz says he can actually cure her easily. After all, it was he that caused her illness to begin with. After Fisk has thrown his temper tantrum, he quickly realises the opportunity being offered and agrees to Raz's terms. Spider-Man and the Batman have meanwhile tracked Raz, presumably through Talia, and before Fisk can input the code that will level New York, Spider-Man interferes. This is merely a distraction technique for the Batman to do his thing, and our Dark Knight alters the satellite's task with causing the disaster, causing them to self-destruct. Vanessa, not a fan of Raz, also assists the Batman, for see, Wilson Fisk was always aware of Raz, and he allowed the Batman and Spider-Man aboard his plane. Raz is impressed with Fisk's duplicity, but has the last laugh. There is no cure for Vanessa's condition. Raz allows everyone to leave because he's amused by Fisk's effrontery, and by the time the authorities arrive in Raz's stronghold, thanks to Fisk's information, which he turns in for immunity, the vast caverns are empty. The Batman manages to find a cure for Vanessa, but it's a small victory. Again, it's got a low-key ending, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, 
As with a lot of the relationships in the Batman family of characters, Talia and Batman's relationship is very dysfunctional. Mm. One minute they're snogging each other's face off, <laughs> the next minute they're slapping each other. Yeah. It's like David and Matty in Moonlight and <laughs> Just get on with it. You know you both want to. Mm. Just do it. Get it out of the way. But, uh, yeah, I prefer him with Catwoman anyway. At least with Catwoman, you've got the idea that there's an opportunity, a, a possibility that she will become an aide and an equal to Batman. Yeah. That she'll she'll change her tune and stop being a thief and what have you. Talia, whilst being endowed with very attractive attributes, is far too much of a daddy's girl mm. to ever really go with Batman and turn her back on Raz, isn't she? Yeah. I prefer Catwoman. What do you think? I, I don't know. You're never really given it any thought, have you not? No, no, no. You're not an old romantic like me, are you not? <laughs> No, okay. I, I quite liked him with Batwoman. Did you? In, yeah, well, Kathy Kane, Batwoman. Yeah. Okay. That's told really well in the Morrison stuff. Oh, all right. Okay, all right. For, uh, Kathy Kane gets her throat slit by the League of Shadows. Yeah. In Denny O'Neill stuff, does does Morrison bring her back? Uh, in flashbacks. All right. So we established that there was a relationship before she got her throat slit. Yeah. So in that story then, which I think is into the death, Den of the Death Dealers, why does Batman go? Oh, Kathy's had a throat shit. <laughs> oh, Kathy's had her throat slit. Oh, well, never mind. Well, uh, she, she, she doesn't die in the flashback. She, oh, right. she just leaves him and then he goes all moody. Right, okay. We got over it. Oh, maybe you just thought, ha ha, bitch dumped me, now she's dead. It's not very nice of him, is it? It's not. Uh, story-wise, I actually thought this was much better than the last one. Dimatteis is more at home with ecology plot lines, a subject he's visited before. So having him script Raz seems more natural than Carnage and the Joker. But he also manages to weave this into regular continuity. Vanessa Fisk seems like she's been ill for as long as she's been in the comic. Yeah. So having her be even iller didn't really <laughs> seem to matter much. And the flip-flopping between Talia and Batman slash Raz is also a well-established part of both characters. So that worked out well as well. I especially like that page. The page where Batman and Talia outline Raz's goals and it's like a split screen. Batman's on the left and Talia's on the right. And they're different viewpoints of same. Yeah. Whereas she describes what he's doing as being the act of a saviour who wants to purify the planet, and Batman describes it as being the act of a complete and utter madman. Mm. Both of them are right. Yes. Which is. From the, a certain point of view. From a certain point of view, yeah. Which is the beauty of a Raz storyline. Yeah. That. So, a, a good writer can make the reader have some sympathy with Raz's ultimate goals, which is what makes him compelling as a villain. He can come across as almost noble yeah. in the hands of a decent writer, even though ultimately you're sat there going, yeah, but to do this he's going to wipe out half the planet. There's a part of you that goes, yeah, but after he's done that, well, it's it'll an, be a better place. It's an Ozymandias thing, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. Doing the wrong things, but for the right reasons. Mm. I think that why, that's why Raz is such an interesting bad guy. Yeah. Because you do agree with him whether, you, whether you're admitted or not. Yeah, unless he's been completely crazy, Yeah, which sometimes he is. But when he's just on one of these, look, well, you know, half the population will die, but we'll get a better planet out of it at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a part of you that, that actually relates to what he's saying, which is the best villain. Yeah. When you can understand the villain's motivation, even if you don't agree with him. 
Mm. That's always the best kind of villain. Um, there is that panel um, on page twenty-three of of the kingpin, and I had to I had to look at that panel quite a few times because he's supposed to be laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Ha ha ha! Next him to make it seem like he's laughing, but he looks like he actually looks like he's passing a kidney stone. <laughs> yeah, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree entirely. That does not look like the face of somebody who's laughing. <laughs> that looks like uh, he looks much more pained. Though. He's, he's just watched his prize puppy get run <laughs> over and then reversed over and run over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, yeah, that was that was an old artistic choice. Maybe uh, was John Romita to redraw faces when you need him. Yeah. To make it look like he's actually laughing. Uh, the Kingpin, it was actually in character for the Kingpin to betray Raz. He's always been a character who loves New York, albeit a New York where he rules. You know, maybe if Raz had chosen somebody less ambitious, like, say, the Owl, mm. this plan may have worked. Yeah. But the Kingpin is, is very loyal to New York City, which, again, is an interesting character trait. Peter and Mary Jane go to Mickey's Diner which looks exactly like the same diner that all the characters from ER frequent. Okay. I wonder if uh, the hospital's just round the corner, or George Clooney's in there, so Peter can go up to him and go, you were a crap Batman, dude. <laughs> or maybe or Batman, Batman can go up to him and go, you were a crap Batman, dude. <laughs> um, once again, and I get the feeling that DeMatteis is a big fan of this, he pulls the Bronze Age trick of Batman and Spider-Man having Mission Impossible-style masks over the regular masks. Mm. But it doesn't seem as out of place in this one. Yeah. Because this story feels like a 70s comic book plot. It's almost like a Roger Moore James Bond film. Yeah. Given a 90s makeover, which may be why I like this one better. It's a globe-trotting romp with a megalomaniacal villain and larger-than-life heroes, and there's quite a dollop of good humour in this one. Mm. Spider-Man's actually cracking jokes as he's kicking the crap out of people, and actually makes reference to Hope and Crosby's Road 2 movies. And Batman corrects him. Yeah. Batman's like, no, that was the road to Morocco. <laughs> and Spider-Man's like, what? Because, like, you know, I'd have thought he'd have been more into film noir than, yeah. than Crosby and Hope Road 2 movies. That was quite funny. Mm. And again, Batman being deliberately funny rather than being, you know, just arrogant all yeah. the time. And he actually has a little bit of a smile. It's very yeah. tiny. But it's there. But a little bit of a smile when he references that I used to watch him when I was a kid. Mm. So he's remembering something that he liked from his childhood. This one was more enjoyable, though, because it was an adventure. Yeah. It's, it's like the best Ra's al Ghul stories. It doesn't just take place in Gotham. Yeah. It, there's a globe-trotting element to it. The, and the interesting thing about that as well is you're taking Batman and Sp- uh, Spider-Man out of their element, mm. which can always be interesting. I mean, I don't want Batman to go to the moon, because I'm never really a big fan of that. I don't know, I kind of do. do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you would. But you put him in the Himalayas along with Spider-Man, and Spider-Man's like, well, what do I stick to here? Yeah. That kind of thing. You the can, same for Batman, where yeah. does he hide? You can, yeah. How does it How does he hide, hide in snow? snow yeah. yeah. So you can get to, you can get some good humour out of stuff like that. Um, speaking of humour, there's a really, really good bit. Batman says, I was never cute. Yeah. When Spider-Man says, oh, well, you're a cute kid. So that's kind of funny. And there's a lovely bit as well. They get trapped in a cave-in later on. And Batman has a light in his utility belt just in case he ever got caught in a cave-in in the middle of Tibet. Yeah. yeah. And Spider-Man's like... So you had that <laughs> for just such an eventuality. 
And uh, Batman's like, well, I needed it, didn't I? <laughs> well, he's he's been to Tibet before, and yeah. the other one. And then Spider-Man's line, what, for those times when you find yourself in a pitch black cave in the middle of Tibet? And Batman's like, you'd be surprised how often that happens. <laughs> was that a joke? Absolutely not. <laughs> Come on, that was funny. Yeah. That was genuinely funny stuff. And I, again, going by funny, I like that Raz wasn't upset or annoyed or even surprised yeah. by the Kingpin's betrayal. He just laughs. He just finds it funny. He's like, oh, well played, mm. Mr. Fisk. Which is, again, one of the things I like about Raz. He's a Bond villain just waiting to happen. Yeah, he, he, that's exactly what he is. He's a James Bond villain. Yeah. And putting Batman into Bond's shoes works. Mm. I mean, obviously, he doesn't shoot anyone. But it works as a story conceit. And it worked when Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did it in Daughter of the Demon, and it works just as well here when James Mateus does it. Yes. Pity we couldn't get Neil Adams to draw it. Mm. But, you know, he'd have probably introduced some ridiculous concepts to it that would make you roll, roll your eyes now. Um, I liked this one much better than the first team-up. It actually plays out... It feels like there are high stakes. Yeah. Instead of just carnage going on another tedious rampage. It features two villains that are actually capable of defeating Batman and Spider-Man, but they aren't so ridiculously powerful that the heroes are outclassed. And Dematteis, Dematteis, however I pronounced it, I've pronounced it multiple ways throughout the yeah. show, haven't I? Whatever. John Mark uh, does a great job with all the backstabbing and the double-crossing, and there actually feels like there's some teamwork between Batman and Spider-Man this, out, this time out. sorry. Although, to be honest... This is more of a Batman story than a Spider-Man story. Mm. And it's a 70s Batman story at that. Yeah. But it's well done. A Batman story. I may have said Spider-Man then, it doesn't matter. Spider has some good lines and he still doesn't understand Batman, which is a nice touch. But it was the villains that stole the show. Talia and Raz were as engaging as ever. Even if Raz's plot seemed a little bit half-baked. So New York's been sunk. So what? How does that make the rest of the world just fall in line? Start panicking. If all of New York... Just sunk. Just sunk. People would start, you know, being worried. All right, okay. Fair enough. Aquaman maybe. did sink the UK. Yeah, Aquaman's a toad, though, isn't he? I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and did the rest of the world fall in line at that point? Or did they just go, oh, that pity little island? They, they kind of fell in line. Did yeah. they? What, because I just sunk an entire country? Aquaman was pretty badass in Flashpoint. Was that Flash Red Flashpoint? Why don't I remember that? Because you don't remember what you ate for breakfast this morning. That's actually a very good point. <laughs> I am now trying to think what I had for breakfast this morning. Anyway, Wilson Fisk is almost the hero of the story, isn't he? Yeah. Very I, almost. I enjoyed this story as a kingpin story. Mm. I, I was more interested in him than Batman or Spider-Man well, or Rush. That's exactly, that's exactly the point that I'm making. The, the, king, the villains are the best bit of it, and yes, it's a kingpin story. It's a lot more personal to kingpin. Mm. He goes through an actual emotional arc in this story. Raz doesn't, Batman doesn't, Spider-Man doesn't, they're no different at the end of the yeah. story. I mean, although you can never refer to this again, mm. you can't have the kingpin in the middle of a Spider-Man battle say, hey, I've not seen you since that time in Tibet <laughs> where we met Batman. I suppose you could have him say, I've not seen you since that time in Tibet and just leave it there. Yeah. 
putting this firmly in continuity, mm. but you can't have him referencing meeting Ra's al Ghul again. No. Can you? So, yeah, but yeah, it's a kingpin story in that he's the one who goes through an emotional arc throughout the storyline. And it's one of those things where the stakes are high for everyone, but they're even higher to him because it's his wife on the line. Yeah, and his city. Yeah. He, he thinks of New York as being his city as much as Batman thinks of Gotham as being his. Mm. So, yeah. It's a good point, that. And, uh, I li- Rose doesn't really do that much. He just gets to act megalomaniacal and, and be cool. Yeah, yeah. And hang around with lots of scantily clad women and think that Talia's betrayed him again, when in fact it wasn't Talia this time. Yeah. So that was a nice touch. I like that as well. Uh, Graham Nolan does a decent job on the art. He tries to ape John Romita on the Spider-Man sequences, but he can't quite pull it off. No. He's just not that good. So his Spider-Man and Murray Jane just look wrong, but he nails the kingpin. Yeah, apart from that one panel you mentioned. And even <laughs> then, if you accept that he's not laughing, it's a good panel. Yeah, yeah. If you think he's passing gas, <laughs> it's a pretty good panel. If you think he's having a, go- a gut-busting belly laugh, yeah. that's when it fails. But as as an artistic job, he does a very good job with the kingpin. I really like the art everywhere else. It's very similar to uh, Cameron Stewart, or Cameron Stewart's very similar Senator to this. Graham Nolan, there, was, yeah. there was a lot of times when you know it could very easily be a Cameron Stewart panel. Yeah, well, he's had, like we say, he's had a lot of practice drawing the Bat family. And he does a great job with them and Talia and, and Rose because he's, he's been drawing detective comics for God knows how many years at this point. Um, it's still not quite a classic team-up. But with the pressure of this being the first one taken off it, it's a more interesting story than the first one. Yeah, There's a feeling in this one that I got that, well, we've already done this before... There's no pressure to put the Joker in it mm. and Carnage or make it sell or make it a bland, tedious Carnage goes on a mad rampage again. Let's just tell a good story. They can tell the story they want to. Yeah, and they did. And this one was much better in terms of its story than the second one. I can't help but wish Bagley had drawn this one. Yeah. Rather than the first one. I think Graham Nolan would have been better for that one with the Joker being in it. Yeah. And Bagley would have been better for this one. But then this is more of a Batman story. Yeah, there is that. And the way they worked, wasn't it? They swapped. Marvel will have produced the first one, DC produced the second one. Yeah. Although James Mattis ended up writing both. So, yeah. So, second one's better than the first one, in our humble opinion. Mm-hmm. They, none of them sucked. No. None of them. One sucked less than the other. Yes, one, one sucked less than the other. They were both enjoyable. Yeah. And if you see them for cheap, I would, I'd recommend picking them up. But I wouldn't say they were worth seven, six, seven dollars No. And I think the trade paperback reprints of all of these crossover classics are all out of print now. Right. Because Marvel and DC, they don't talk to each other. <laughs> Since Quizada yeah. came along and started bad-mouthing AOL comics, DC... A- AOL did AOL comics. Com- no, he called them AOL comics because oh, right, AOL right. was owned by Warner Brothers, who right. owned DC Comics. And now that's a joke that people go, what was AOL? Right, okay. So Kisada jumped from, from DC and then... And then badmouthed them. Yeah. And now the relationship is in the toilet. So we're not likely to get another Batman-Spider-Man crossover anytime soon. Just wait until Disney buys DC out. We know it'll happen. Oh, did, can you imagine a Pixar Superman movie, though? In all seriousness. I guess, yeah. A Pixar Superman movie would be awesome, mm-hmm. I it, think. It would be similar to the original animated ones. Yeah, to the Felicia ones. Yeah. I think that'd be brilliant. I would be down with a Pixar Superman <laughs> movie. I'd be totally down with that. Next time on an all-new episode of Pikachu Comics, it's the main event. Two episodes of foreplay, and now it's into the proper contest. The Justice League Avengers by Kurt Busiek 
and George Perez, because these are big, big comics with a lot going on, we're splitting this into two. So next week, it's the first two parts. You know how many people that means they're just going to wait and listen to both back-to-back? So what we should do is not release one next week and release them both back-to-back. But then what's the point of doing them as two shows? Uh, I can't be bothered editing three-hour episodes anymore, dude. I'm, I'm quite happy with 60 to 90-minute episodes. So you're all right editing uh, 120 minutes. You're, you're, you're all right editing three hours split up, just not together. Yeah. <laughs> That's a different thing. I don't okay, think we'll okay, end yeah. up being 90 minutes. I'm trying to keep these between 75 and 90 now. Yeah. That's a good length. That's what she said. Anyway, on that bombshell, (laughs) we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.